I would ask you to read the portions marked all in response to the first line that I read. He has borne and carried the evil of our hearts. Because of our transgressions, he was wounded. Our iniquities crushed him. We wove the thorny crown, we pierced his side. The Lord laid on him all our iniquity, punishment, and guilt. We are guilty. We have sinned. We have each gone our own corrupt way. We find ourselves in a deep pit of our own making. We find ourselves far from God. We are rebels. But our evil is ugly. We have blotted out the name of the sinless one. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. What do you call something like that? Heavenly Father, this evening we turn our attention to what you have done in the person of your Son. Thank you that you did not withhold, but your desire to have us as family outweighed all. Father, this evening we want to focus on that great sacrifice to prepare our hearts for the third day when we celebrate. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask all this. Amen. And amen. Welcome to our Good Friday service. As, as I mentioned, this is one of the purposes of Good Friday, is that Easter, it's the greatest day of the year. It's the day when we celebrate more than anything else. But we celebrate the resurrection, but for there to be a resurrection, there first has to be a death. And we don't want to fly by that too quickly. These are, these are interrelated elements of our faith. And so we do pause, we mourn, we remember what our God was willing to do. <clears throat> so we're just going to focus on some of the last hours of Jesus's life prior to his uh, death, crucifixion, and burial. One of my favorite passages in scripture is Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and it, it says this, that, that Jesus, he spends most of his time in the Galilee area, but he knows his last week is going to be in Jerusalem. And so it says in Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. That's a picture of, he's, he's resolute. He's absolutely steadfast. He's determined 
to be sure that this happens. And so it's here that Jesus begins, right after that, to begin speaking quite openly of his death and what's going to happen. The last week of Jesus' life is in Jerusalem. He spends the night in Bethany, a little, a little sister town just over the hill, a couple miles away with uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He spends the nights there, but his days, he walks into Jerusalem, he crests the Mount of Olives, and he goes down to the Tyropean Valley and then up to the city. And he does this day after day, spending his time there, but he begins to make people mad, religious leaders, but he knows his time is very short. And so we fast forward to these few hours, Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, we read this. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. From their perspective, Jesus is a false teacher. He's leading Israel astray. And so they go get themselves in cahoots with one of Jesus's closest followers. Verse 15, and Judas said, what will you give me? if I deliver him over to you. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Whole books have been written what exactly was going on inside Judas for him to do this. All we know is that it was no longer expedient to follow Jesus under Jesus' terms. And so he took matters into his own hands. Verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, in the Jewish calendar, Passover, it's the culmination of your entire year. During this time, Jesus does something very intentional. Jesus overlaps his death with Passover very intentionally because he wants you to understand what his death is all about. He doesn't want you to think he, he, he's, he's just a martyr. He's communicating something very clearly. The uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day uh, pilgrimage uh, feast that is Jews from all over the world because they've been uh, scattered all over the world since the Old Testament, since the Assyrians came in and took many of them back to their nations. They come to this city, and you've got as many as 100,000 packed into this tiny area here that normally has so few left. Now, these are all Jewish pilgrims, so they're ethnically Jewish, but culturally they're diverse. They've been living in other cultures, speaking other languages, maybe wearing different clothes, eating different kinds of food even. So if you can just imagine all of these people packed in there, lots of languages. Imagine the alleyways, these tiny little alleyways, the, the smells, the music, homes packed with extended relatives, and Jesus has been here all week, and tonight, it's transitioning into the Passover. As soon as the sun goes down on Wednesday night, it's Thursday. That seems kind of weird to us, but that's how they count days. As Soon as the sun's down, it's technically Passover. And so he's celebrating it right there. You might think of it as Wednesday night, or it's technically the Passover, even if it is later Wednesday night. And so um, he, he doesn't have 24 more hours. He's, he's only probably got about nine more hours. And he knows his time is short. So he's having a Passover meal with his closest followers. And here's, here's what I want us to see. Um, many times, Jesus talks that he's going to die. 
Very few times does he ever say a word about the meaning of his death. In fact, you couldn't even fill one whole page with all the times that Jesus uh, explained his death. In chapter 20, he says, I'm giving it as a ransom for many. He doesn't say much, though. However, what Jesus does do, he's a brilliant teacher, he, when he wants his disciples to understand, hey, over the next few hours, as you look back on that and realize what was going on with his beatings and the crucifixion and the death, I want you to remember. So I'm not going to give you words. I'm going to give you a meal. And this meal is almost going to be like a little acted out parable that will help you understand what is Jesus' death all about? What does it really mean? Matthew chapter 26, verse 18, he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Um, this is the second time something like this has happened. If, if you remember the story, of the story, first one had to do with the donkey. Remember, he says, of the day he's coming into Jerusalem, he says, go get a donkey, it's tied. When the person asks, what are you doing, tell him this, right? Why is this important? Jesus is totally in control. <laughs> he's not a hapless victim. Every step of the way is planned and prepared. He knows exactly what he's doing. No one is forcing this on him. He is completely and utterly in control. He's prearranged this whole thing. Jesus knows the storm that's going to overtake him shortly. He knows what's coming, and he just wants a couple of hours with his closest followers to transform a Passover meal and to explain, to map his life, death, burial, and resurrection onto the Passover meal so that every time they do it, they're reminded of what Christ has done. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at a table with the 12. Now, if, if you think of the Last Supper, I don't know how many of you think of Leonardo da Vinci's painting. Uh, erase that out of your mind. They're not on chairs. They're not at a table. They're not all on one side of the table, right? <clears throat> they're, they're reclining. That is to say, there's, there's a small, some sort of little table in the center, and all the guys have their feet sticking outward, laying on their side, and they're leaning probably on a pillow, and they're probably leaning on the person next to them. That's why when it says the disciple who was at Jesus' breast, because that's how they're laying. And so this person is laying, this person laying on that one, and they're all sort of around this table right here. If you've ever been to a traditional Middle Eastern restaurant, there's a, one that I remember going to with my family called Matam Fez. You've never been to Matam Fez? And you eat in this traditional way. You're on the floor with pillows, and you have common table that you're all <clears throat> taking from. Um, in Jesus' day, it was probably a lot more, more simple, but the way it's designed is um, around cups of wine. The Passover, it, it's, it's broken up into four sections, and there's one cup for each section, so there's four cups of wine throughout this meal and how it's broken up. So he has the first drink. The meal begins, this is a festive time, it's, it's joyful while eating. Verse 21 we read, as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas would betray him, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So think about what's going to happen in the garden. All of them are going to run away. They're all going to leave him, betray him at one level, Judas in a more significant way. At this point in the traditional meal, if you were eating the Passover meal with the family, this is where the kids part is. The kids come into play here, and they start asking these questions. Uh, What makes this night different from all the others? Um, Why do we eat only unleavened bread tonight? Why do we eat bitter herbs tonight? Why, Why do we dip the vegetables in that? Why do we recline at table tonight? The point is, it's like, what's this all about? Why are we doing this? And at this point, the family would open up the Torah and read three long chapters out of Exodus. It takes like 40 minutes. I, we won't do that tonight. Um, I'll just tell you a shortened, abbreviated version from Deuteronomy 26. Verse 5, it goes like this. They would answer, well, we do this because our father was a wandering Aramean. That's Abraham they're speaking of. And he went down to Egypt with a few people and lived there, became a great nation, powerful, numerous But the Egyptians mistreated us, made us suffer, subjected us to harsh labor. And we cried out to Yahweh, the God of our ancestors. And Yahweh heard our voice, saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place, gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. At the core, here's what they're saying. They're saying, we're we're telling a liberation story that God has liberated his people. At the conclusion of that reading, they would sing Psalm 113 and then second cup, second part of the meal. Now, Rabbi Gamaliel, you all know Rabbi Gamaliel. You know him from his most famous student, Paul. Paul the Apostle was a student of Gamaliel, we're told. The Rabbi Gamaliel said, you haven't really celebrated Passover unless you have minimum of three things, Gamaliel taught. The three things were uh, unleavened bread, eating bitter herbs, and the Passover lamb. As a bare minimum, Gamaliel would say, you have to involve those three things, for there to have a Passover. Now, the bread, um, it's missing yeast. It's, it's flattened bread. It's not exactly like this one here. R- reason for that being is they said, just like you have to leave Egypt quickly when the time comes, you don't have time for the bread to rise. So th- that's going to be this reminder, because remember, this is a symbolic meal that you're participating in to to ground you to something of an event that God has done in your life. And so um, here's where Jesus goes off script. So far, Jesus has been a great head of the house, (laughs) leading the Passover, but he goes off script here in a really weird way. Verse 26, Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, here's where he drops the bomb. 
Take and eat. This is my body. I would submit to you, when he says, this is my body, he's not just meaning this right here. Now, for me, I think of bread, I think of a great harvest bread company, I think of King Supers, that's where the bread is, right? If, if, if I've never made a loaf of bread before, if you're in the ancient world, when you think of the bread, you think of the whole process. You think of everything that goes into it, right? If you've got, how do you, how do you make bread? You take dough, and what do you do with it? You know, you, you smash it, right? You knead it. Then you put it in an oven, right? Then you eat it, you consume it, and it sustains you, right? I would suggest to you that that whole picture is what Jesus had in mind, because he's explaining what's gonna happen to him in the coming hours. He's not just saying, oh, that's kinda cool, I'm like bread. <laughs> he's saying, think of the whole process of what you have to do to get bread and then to eat it. And he says, that is what is exactly what's going to happen to me, Jesus is gonna be whipped. He's going to be beaten. He's gonna be thrown into his own furnace, a Roman execution rack, and somehow his death is going to sustain me just like the bread does. Do you see what he's saying? This is my body. This is what is going to happen to me over the next few hours that will explain what's going on, why it's happening. So number one, Gamaliel said, you have to have bread. Number two, he said, you have to have bitter herbs. Um, think of horseradish. That's pretty much the equivalent to that. Um, and you would take lettuce or something, and, and, and you would dip it in this, uh, these bitter, bitter herbs. The Hebrew word is maror. You, you dip it in the, in the maror, the bitter herbs. And remember, the kids always ask these questions, why do we do this? Why the bitter herbs? And the parents would say, well, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11 says this, the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves, appointing brutal slave drivers over them. The Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives maror. They made their lives bitter. So every time you're eating the maror, you're thinking of the bitter life of life lived outside of the capacity of God, lived outside under the rule of God. Because of this meal, every generation that eats it, they, they, they think of themselves as, I'm the generation that came out of slavery. I'm the generation that God directly saved. He saved me. They, they, they viewed it as, I'm participating. I am a part I'm not just an observer. I'm a participant in God's salvation history, and I'm grounding myself, I'm, I'm tying myself to God's salvation history by virtue of participation in this practice right here. And we cry tears. See, the point of doing the horseradish is, I mean, you know what your eyes do when you eat that stuff? You have tears coming down from your face, right? And you cry because of what happened to your ancestors, but you also cry because your own people, your leaders, like Solomon, like Manasseh, like Ahab, um, do you realize that they became like Pharaoh? Do you ever think about that? They killed innocent people. 
Um, here's the point. We also cry because we realize in every generation, there is this opportunity for us to become Pharaoh, for our hearts to be hardened just like his. And so it's this, this realization of, I need another exodus, not just the physical one. I need, I need another kind of exodus. So you have to have bread, Gamaliel said. You have to have bitter herbs. Lastly, he said, last element to the meal, you would have to have a lamb. Now, it's, it's, it's clear that Matthew is giving us just an abbreviated version of this story. So more happened. He's just writing what is there. But authors have often pointed out the mention of the lambs uh, well, no mention of it, it's the, the, the absence of it is conspicuous. Doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't there. It very likely could have been there, and there are a couple options. Scholars tell us that either Matthew just didn't mention it, 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 it wasn't uh, purposeful for what he was writing. Another option is that um, uh, there was no lamb because this was, remember, it just turned Passover that evening, and the lambs weren't sacrificed. Maybe that's the case, why they didn't have one. Another possibility is that Jesus is just doing his thing. <laughs> Jesus does things in order to get certain responses, right? And he's master he knows exactly how to get a certain response out of you by doing something. And it's possible there wasn't one there because he wanted the last question on the lips of the disciple to be, where's the lamb? Where is the lamb? It's not Passover if we don't have the lamb. But what is the lamb all about? Why a lamb? It could be a lamb or a goat, one year old. It goes back to the Exodus. It goes back to the, what we traditionally call the 10 plagues. The very last one was bringing death on the firstborn, human and animal, everywhere, bringing death on the firstborn. Um, <clears throat> Which, again, seems like, gosh, that seems harsh. Well, it's matching Pharaoh's actions. You remember Pharaoh said, I want every Hebrew boy thrown into the Nile, Nile and drowned. So this is matching what he has done and bringing it to the firstborn. But there's one difference. He makes a way of escape. Pharaoh didn't do that. Pharaoh didn't make a way of escape. The way of escape is you take this lamb, you have this meal, but you take its blood, and you put it on the doorposts, of the home, and everyone in that home, when, when the death angel comes, will pass over that house, and they're all saved because they have responded to God in faith. That's hence the name Passover of this holiday. Through this lamb, God takes out his judgment. That's a good thing. But he provides a way of escape. And it's possible that Matthew doesn't mention the lamb, maybe because he wants even just the reader to, to put two and two together. Because when Jesus then goes to talk about the cup and his blood, well, that's lamb language, right? So he wants you, the reader, to at least, even if there is a lamb there, to identify this Jesus is playing that role of providing a way of escape. And then he takes the third cup, Matthew 27, Sorry, Matthew 26, 27. Then he took a cup. That's the third cup, if you're counting. <laughs> and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. 
This is third or second bomb here. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for, for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says this. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom anew. Now remember, the blood of the Lamb is what sealed the covenant with Israel to God and through this experience. And so God is going to forgive their sins and through this people bring back his own blessing to the world which has been lost. What Jesus is saying is that in the next 8 to 12 hours, his blood is going to be spread all over the place, all over his body, all over the cross, all over the ground. And the blood of that lamb is going to seal a new covenant family. This blood, which is the substitute, it's going to absorb all human sin that it is applied to. Notice it doesn't end here. Jesus says there's another Passover coming when everything is made new. He says, because remember, there was the fourth cup, but it was after the third that he says, I won't drink this again. I'll drink the fourth cup, but not anytime soon. (laughs) But I will drink the fourth cup with you. He's pointing to there's going to be another Passover meal that he makes a promise that it's on the other side of his death And his death is somehow accomplishing another meal that he promises to be at with us. Jesus reshapes this meal. And the point of all of this is to understand that it's it's not just to get these ideas in our head. It's to participate in it. That's why each generation who participates in this mini abbreviated version of Passover, it's called communion, Every time we do it, we're saying, I was at that original table. I'm participating. Both in the guilt of the death is ultimately my fault, but ultimately it's also for my faults. It was given to me. Because see, here's here's something the Jews experienced. This one Passover meal, they would do it once a year, all year long, they had the opportunity to to live in another story. Maybe it was a Babylonian story. Maybe it was a Canaanite story. Maybe it was an Egyptian story. And, you know, they must have thought, oh, you know, those Canaanite gods are so progressive. Oh, those Babylonian gods are so... But then once a year, they rooted themselves back into a different story about who Yahweh is, about who they are, about their meaning, about their purpose, about what God's design for them, about what will make you happy, (laughs) what will fulfill you, what should you pursue in life, what should you care about, give your time to. See, those are all answers that come from a story. And you're, you're being offered constantly different stories to live in to answer all those questions. This is a different story. Every time we do this, we're rooting ourselves in a different story that gives really different answers than what is being sold to us, what we're just living in naturally. Because here's what I would suggest. Jesus realizes a new exodus has to happen. That's what he's doing. Um, 
Think about it this way. Uh, you've heard the old phrase, you can take a boy out of the country, can't take the country out of a boy or whatever. You can take an Israelite out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of an Israelite. That's what Jesus knew. He knew that's the human heart, that you have a Pharaoh-like heart. <laughs> and so a new exodus has to happen to solve that, to get the Egypt out of the Israelite. Another exodus has to take place. And so every time we take this cup, we're stepping into that story. We're recognizing our need for a second exodus, one at a heart level, to happen. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to reenact the meal with me right now as a reminder of a promise made to us that one day we will have another Passover meal with Jesus in the new creation, in resurrected bodies, and we'll be with Jesus, we'll be with the Lord. This is the fourth cup. So if you have the elements, I'm gonna ask you to stand. That student of Gamaliel, Paul, wrote these words. For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Paul ended by saying, for as often as you <clears throat> eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
benediction. It is finished. May the God who is present amidst darkness, may the God who is present amidst the tomb, may the God who is present amidst the darkest days and greatest losses be with us now as we wait with Jesus for the third day. Amen. Go on the grace of God. See you on the third day.